Well, happy Mother's Day. Um, today, as we get into our scripture, I want to ask, what do moms want to teach their kids? They, there we go. They spent countless hours, years in fact, raising their kids, teaching them with the hope that when they send them out into the world that they are prepared, that they'll know how to do important things like put the toilet seat down, like how to tie shoes, how to not chew with your mouth open, and many, many more, very much more important tasks than that. See, a mom wants to warn and teach and exhort their children, her children, to be better, to be what they need to be. And today, we have a passage that's not your traditional Mother's Day passage. In fact, what we have today is we have Jesus teaching the disciples what they can expect and what they can uh, plan on happening to them. But unlike most people, Jesus doesn't want us to focus on the bad things that are going to happen to us, but instead to focus on who's there with us in the midst of it. This is a passage that Katie just read that is full of opposition, full of persecution. And boy, aren't those the flavors of the month to talk about. But the thing is, that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is not, hey, here comes the opposition. The point of this passage is, but Jesus is there with us. God is there with us. There's so much more to this passage than meets the eye. So here's your big idea if you want to write it down. Jesus instructs his followers in the harsh reality of opposition alongside the glorious reality of provision. Jesus is saying, you're going to have tough times coming. Conflict is coming your way. But don't lose heart. But don't give up. Don't think I'm leaving you out to dry. Instead, he's saying, oh man, I am providing for you in ways you can't even imagine. See, it's really easy for us. You know, there's actually whole uh, parts of our society that make a living off of pointing out the opposition, the persecution, the, the trials that we're going through. And it's really easy for us to get kind of tunnel vision here. And when we read this passage, it's really easy to go, oh man, this looks terrible. Look at this. They have to go to court. They have to be flogged. They're going to go before the, the governors and the kings. Not only that, but their family members are going to deliver them over to death. And yes, those are horrible, and those things happen in our world, have happened, will happen, are happening. But Jesus' point in this passage is not that those things are happening, it's that he is going to give us something in those moments. He's going to give us something that we so desperately need. And so today, we have to not miss the point. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer, you're going, this is the worst salesman's job ever about joining Christianity. Hey, come follow Jesus, and you're going to lose friends and family. That is not something that we're ever going to see on an advertisement. However, what is promised here, though, is not just, hey, when you die, you get to go to heaven. It's that you get to experience God now in the trial. You get to have God indwell you now in the midst of it. Oh yeah, and there is also this thing about heaven for eternity. All of that is what we see in this passage today. There is the gift of the blessing, the grace, the gifts, the provisions, all of it in the midst of the opposition. So when we read this today, let's not miss the point. 
Let's not forget one of Jesus' many names, Emmanuel. What does it mean? God with us. God has condescended to come down and to be with us. And this is the good news to go along with the gospel. So here we go, verse 16. Jesus starts off. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. This is Jesus' thesis. He's saying, there's going to be conflict. Here's how you handle it. So he models for us. He says, this is the model. This is the situation you find yourself in. You are sheep. We are sheep. And Jesus says, go into the middle of the wolves. Again, he starts off with that word behold, which when we know in the book of Matthew, whenever he says behold, it's all caps, exclamation point, pay attention, surprise, this is not what's to be expected. Jesus doesn't say, take your sheep, go find a really safe spot, build up walls, keep the wolves out, and hunker down. No, Jesus says, I'm going to take you sheep with all your defensive mechanisms that sheep possess, and I'm going to send you right into the middle of the wolves. That word send there is the word apostello, which is where we get the word apostle from. Charles Spurgeon makes it really clear how crazy this is. He says, according to the order of nature, such a thing is never seen. But on the other hand, it has been reckoned a great calamity that is in some lands wolves too often seen in the midst of sheep. The wolf leaps into the midst of a flock and rends and tears on every side. It matters not how many sheep there are, One wolf is a match for a thousand sheep. But lo, here you see the sheep sent forth among the wolves, as if they were the attacking party and bent upon putting down these terrible enemies. Think about that. Jesus is saying, I'm sending out my special forces, and they are sheep, and they're going to go into the midst of the wolves. Wolves are known for devouring sheep. As a matter of fact, wolves get off on killing sheep. Not to eat them, just to kill them for the sport of it. And yet, we are called sheep. Sheep are not terrifying animals. There's a reason why schools don't use sheep as their mascots. (laughs) They have no defenses. They have no protection. They have no street smarts. As a matter of fact, it's like God put sheep on the earth just to be food for everybody else. And then he says, you're just like that. Well, thanks, Jesus. That makes me feel really good. I'm a sheep. Couldn't I be like a, I don't know, a zombie sheep or a, you know, something with incredible ability to fight? But no, this is what we are. A few years ago, a man wrote a book called The Benedict Option based on uh, one of the, the monks, the Bened- where we get the Benedictine monks. And the idea was is that, man, our culture stinks. It's terrible. It's rotting. And so Christians need to pull themselves out of culture, make their own little communities, and hunker down and wait for all the wolves to devour themselves, and then we'll rebuild culture. Now, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus doesn't say, hide yourself away. Instead, he says, go and be there in them. We see this throughout the Bible, not just here. John 14 Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
This is Jesus praying to God the Father and saying, keep them in the world, but keep them safe. One of my favorite stories, one of my favorite uh, books I've ever read is about a guy named C.T. Studd. If that's not a great name, I don't know what is. (laughs) This is what he said after he had given up a life of professional sports. He moved to Southeast Asia to be a missionary. He says, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. See, the, the Christian idea, the idea that we see throughout the Bible is go to the wolves. Go into the midst of the wolves. These wolves travel in packs. They hunt sheep. Like I said, they kill them for sport. This does not make the world better in Jesus' eyes because being a wolf here is not a term of endearment. It's actually saying you're a bad guy. As a matter of fact, if you look at most of the children's stories, with the exception of one, the wolf is the bad guy. And for the most part, the wolf is conniving. He's backstabbing. These wolves are going to devour us if we let them. So why, what is Jesus' plan? Just going to sacrifice more sheep? No, Jesus has a plan. He said, this is the situation you find yourself in. You're surrounded by wolves. Here's what you do. He says, you must be shrewd and innocent. So even though sheep are proverbially stupid... They can roll over onto their backs and get stuck and die. They walk towards the wolves. They don't run away. Jesus goes, but do this being wise as serpents. So what we see here, it's not the sheep's stupidity, it's their vulnerability that Jesus is pointing out. He's saying to the sheep, you can't protect yourselves. Don't be stupid and go to the wolves, but go to the wolves recognizing that you're going to need help. And so he says, be wise as serpents. Now, when I think of serpent, I always go right to the Garden of Eden, and I'm thinking, the bad guy, this is, you know, the devil, this is Satan. Jesus is not saying take on all the characteristics of the serpents found in the Bible, but take on their shrewdness, their wisdom. See, snakes, not like sheep, are smart. Snakes know how to get out of the way. Snakes hide and run quickly. Yes, we're to go amongst the wolves and we're to preach the gospel, but when they lunge at you, step aside. When they open their mouths, don't jump in. It's cunning. It's it's being able to understand that that as a snake, as a serpent, you are to be wise in how you share. Spurgeon says there's three ways that we can be like serpents. One is get out of the way. Serpents, get out of the way. Number two, they glide along quietly, which kind of makes them creepy, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's a snake right there. But he says, be quiet about it. Don't make a show about your preaching when you go amongst the wolves. And then third, snakes find ways to get in places no one expects them to get. Same thing goes for us. There are many, many Christians that live in places where there's not supposed to be a single Christian. And that's the wisdom that we are to have. So he says, be be wise among the wolves. Then he says, be innocent as doves. What does this word innocent mean? Well, it means harmless. It's actually from the Greek word without horns, right? This, again, the dove has nothing to protect itself. There's a reason why they are captured and used by magicians and in weddings, because they're easy to capture. They're easy to breed in captivity. They come back because they are innocent. The culture at this time believed that doves were completely innocent. So be as innocent as doves. What this means is don't give them any reason to think wrongly of you. Because remember, we are in the place of Christ when we are preaching in the midst of the wolves. 
And so what we look like is what Christ looks like. So we're to be crafty, but not devious. We're to be innocent, but not naive. One author says, risk your lives as vulnerable, non-combative, sheep-like, courageous witnesses, but try to find ways to give your witness so as not to bring about unnecessary persecution. See, we are going to recognize that persecution is coming, but not seek it out unnecessarily. And we'll see this here in the passage. We are to be innocent and open, not cautious and suspicious, paranoid or fearful. Instead, we are to make sure we see the fact that Christ is the one that's sending us out. So in this first verse, like throughout this passage, he's going to say, here's something happening to you, and then here's a blessing. Here's something that happens. Here's two blessings. He's going to do this throughout, and there's a blessing hitting right here in verse 16. And the blessing is, Jesus sends us out. Jesus says, you are going. This is not some idea that you had after some pizza and you had a late night and the idea gets in your head and you go, I'm going to go do this. No, this is the Lord. This is the God of the universe saying, I'm sending you. Again, Spurgeon nails it. I got to read this. It's too good. We must remember it's the good shepherd who sends us. He says, I who prize you for you are my sheep. I who love you for I bought you with my blood. I who would not expose you to needless danger, I who know my infinite wisdom, in my infinite wisdom, that I am doing a wise and kind thing. It is I who send you my sheep, my dear sheep, the sheep I laid my life down for. I send you in the midst of wolves, therefore you may go safely, for I love you and I am sending you there. See, don't get hung up on the wolves. Get hung up on the fact that it's the God of the universe who is sending you. Jesus says, you're mine. I am sending you. You're my sheep. He's prepared his disciples. And he's saying, this is what's coming your way. And what we see here from verses 17 through the end is that Jesus is predicting what's going to happen to these disciples. It starts immediately after his resurrection. As a matter of fact, Jesus endures the things that we see here. But then his apostles start getting it as soon as they get into Acts chapter 4. And it just continues to ramp on till today. So the first thing we see in verses 17 through 20 is we see persecution and promise. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. So we see there's going to be opposition. We're going to see opposition continue throughout until Jesus comes. Jesus is actually taking what he taught earlier and expanding it. He's saying, you guys remember back when I taught you on the Sermon on the Mount? Remember in chapter 5, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. See, again, what Jesus did in that brilliant Sermon on the Mount, which we cannot spend enough time in, is he says, this is what you need for what's coming down here. And it's the same for us today. Jesus is saying, you are blessed when you're persecuted. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is yours. You're blessed when you're persecuted for my sake because it's the same thing I have. Not only that, but you're blessed because I am with you in it. So the first group we see here in verse 17 is we see the Jewish persecution. So it's a religious pack of wolves that are attacking he says, be on your guard, be, be aware. It's, a, it's an infinitive. It means constantly, ceaselessly vigilant. 
It says they will deliver you over. That word deliver over means to arrest. This is used three times in this passage. There is a definite giving over to someone in authority, someone in policing authority. This is actually the same word that is used for Judas when Judas gives Jesus over to the officials. So we see two groups mentioned here, courts and synagogues. Courts would have been just a local like community court. The synagogues would have been the religious institution, which is where they would have done their worship and their teaching. It's also the only place that the Jews could mete out any sort of discipline. And it says here that you will be flogged. A flogging is a, a whipping of the back, usually with a cane, um, some sort of switch, or even a whip. And usually it's 39 times. And this would be done in the synagogue for people who preached about Jesus. So the first group, this religious pack of wolves, is the Jews. Then verse 18, you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So the next group we see is, this is the Gentile leaders. These are the governors and the kings, the ones who are in charge of everything. So the second pack of wolves is a governmental pack of wolves. This word witness is, to, is the word where we get the word martyr from, martyros. This means you are going to stand up and say, this is what I am for. So this persecution spreads to the Gentile leaders and even to the king. Now Jesus' prophecy, like I said, comes true. It starts in Acts chapter 4, where the disciples are taken before the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders say, don't preach in this name. And they say, you're not going to be able to stop us. We're going to keep preaching. Then they go in chapter 12 before the secular authorities. And again, they say, we're going to keep preaching. It's not going to stop us. And then Acts 14, and then later in Acts, it's alluded to that Paul goes before Nero. They go before the Romans. And in each instance, they say, we are going to worship and we're going to talk about what we saw. See, there's kind of a mystery here. It's, it's like Jesus is saying this work that the disciples do, they kind of back into it, right? It's not like people are like, you know what? I want to get arrested and thrown in jail so I can preach the gospel. This seems like a backwards move. It seems like if they catch you and they throw you in jail, it's actually the opposite of what you should be doing. I mean, you've got to be like Robin Hood, right? You've got to avoid the authorities so you can keep preaching. But Jesus is saying, no, they're going to arrest you. But look at what he says next. To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. The New Living Translation said it best. This is your opportunity to tell the rulers and unbelievers about me. I love this. And in our system of government, not so much in some places in the world, but in our system of government, the accused gets the right to talk. Yeah, I know we've seen all the law and order shows, and it says, you know, don't, don't testify. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says if they arrest you for preaching the gospel, take the stand. Why? Because you're going to preach the gospel again. And they have to listen. The Constitution says it. All the state constitutions, all of our government says it. So when you are arrested and you're taken before a judge, your evangelism is now the judge, the bailiff, the clerk of the court, the jury, the officers, anyone who's in there is going to hear about Jesus. Luke 21, 13, Jesus reiterates this. He says, this is your opportunity to bear witness. Now, the Apostle Paul did this. Acts 26, the Apostle Paul has been in house arrest for about three years. He's been in the same building. Now think about Paul, right? He's this world traveler, and he's traveled the Mediterranean multiple times. 
And then for three years, the Lord has him in house arrest in an area probably no bigger than our church building. Now, do you think Paul stopped witnessing? I'm pretty sure everybody there knew he was a Christian. And I would love to meet some of those guys that became Christians because of what Paul did. But right here, King Agrippa II, one of the most awful rulers Israel ever knew. He's up there with the Herods. He shows up and Paul lays into him with the gospel. And Agrippa goes, tell me why you're not guilty. And God, Jesus, he goes, no, no, I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you about why I believe in Jesus. And then look at what Agrippa says in Acts 29, 26, 28. He says, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And the apostle Paul goes, whether short or long, I would love to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. I love, the, I love Paul's humor there. I love Paul going, I'm not going to hide it. The whole reason why I just shared the gospel in this room is so that King Agrippa becomes saved, his illegitimate wife Bernice becomes saved, and every other one of your entourage hears the gospel and can be saved. This is a place to evangelize. This is a place to bring the gospel out. When you're dragged before a court, when you're taken and written up by the HR department, when you are brought in to the administrator who says, you can't be talking about this stuff. You say, let me have a word. And then you talk about this stuff. We are to preach Christ. Now, if you look at this, and I look at it and I go, okay, I haven't stood before many kings or presidents or prime ministers or premiers, but if I had to stand before them, oh my gosh, what would I say? Good news, Paul said, or Matthew records Jesus saying, don't worry about that. Look at verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. You know, we saw earlier Jesus said we are going to get persecuted. We saw that in Matthew 5. But there's a promise at the end, right? Matthew 5, 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, because they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there is a promise that he's going to deliver us, he's going to tell us what to say, and there's a reward in heaven. But don't miss the fact the rewards start now. There's a reward right here in verse 19. He says, My spirit will give you what to say. Notice it says, not if they arrest you, but when they arrest you. I will give you the words. Verse 20, it's not you who speak, but it's the Spirit who is in you. The Spirit from the Father speaking through you. So there's two promises here. One, God's going to give you the words to say. He's going to tell you what to say. Secondly, the third member of the Trinity, who is God, is going to be inside of you, living, taking up residence to help you know what to say. Luke chapter 12, which is the parallel passage to this one in Luke. Jesus says, when they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authority, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And this is not just a promise for the first group of disciples. It spreads on. The Apostle Paul in chapter 8 of Romans says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Is there any more spot of weakness than to have yourself chained in front of a king who's deciding whether you're going to live or die? He says, for we do not know what to pray, 
but the Spirit himself intercedes with us, with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul can say that because he recognizes the Spirit is in him, and the Spirit's the one doing the work. So nothing can touch him. So does this mean that when we stand up there, we just wing it? No. As a matter of fact, Scripture doesn't teach that. Instead, what it's teaching us here is to stop worrying. Colossians 4, 6 Paul writes, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know what you ought to answer each person. So Paul knows that in order for seasoning, it takes a while. So you've got to be marinating in God's word. You've got to be marinating in the Spirit's presence in your life. And then that's what's going to transition and help you have the confidence that when the Holy Spirit has spoken to you for years in your private life, he's going to speak at the moment of your most weakest, right there in front of the king or queen or ruler. See, there's always this balancing act, right? We've seen this throughout Matthew. We've seen this balancing act. Jesus had talked in Matthew 6 about worrying about clothes and food and drink, where he says, I will provide, but you must work. And that's the same thing we see here. We need to be preparing ourselves, but we also need to know ultimately God is the one who provides. And that balancing act will constantly be there. And third, there's, a, there's another promise kind of hidden here. It says, your father, your father, not the father, not a father, not father God, but your father. What a sweet reminder that God is with us in the midst of whatever we're experiencing. One of my favorite verses, it's actually on the wall in our house, is Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Psalm 40 is another one that gives me encouragement. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help, my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Again, he is our Father, and it's throughout the Bible but I think the best place to see this again is Paul, who's walked these paths before us. In Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Father's love is assured. We are his children. His thoughts are on us. There is nowhere we can go where we are outside of his presence. I mean, read Psalm 139. That's what the entire thing is about. All the way through, he is ours. He is with us. So yes, persecution's gonna come. We're gonna stand before rulers. We're gonna stand before people in authority over us. But God is there with us. His spirit resides with us, will give us the words to say because he cares for his children. Next, we see more persecution. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. So now the pack of wolves is a family, a familial pack of wolves. The betrayal to death by a family member. 
There could probably not possibly be a worse situation to feel. One author wrote this. I know of an instance in a Muslim land where a recent convert's wife placed ground glass in his meal, killing him. She became a hero in that region. In a similar vein, I've had many students who've experienced family rejection after following Christ. One of them, their family performed a funeral for the new convert, signifying that that new believer was dead. This is not hyperbole. There were plenty of martyrs in the early church and continue to this day. So this brother giving over to brother to death is something that happens, and it may happen here. Look at verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So not only is it a familial pack of wolves, but it's all the wolves are going to come after you. Hated for my name's sake. Again, echoing what we saw in chapter 5. It's not hated because of a political stance. It's not hated because of who we vote for. It's not hated for any of those reasons. It's hated because we are Christ's representatives on earth. And that's what we do. We stand for Christ. We stand for the gospel. We will not stop preaching the gospel. The only way they could silence the apostles was to kill them. And that's the mindset we need to have. You will be hated by everyone because of Christ. Spurgeon writes, if my dear friend, you are a thoroughgoing Christian, you must not expect to escape scorn because your life is a standing protest against the lives of others. So again, families will deliver you over. Everyone else that's not on the list will come after you. But then again, look at the promise in 22. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Stands firm to the end. Now you read this and you go, wait a sec, so I'm only a Christian if I stand until the end, and so I've got to work to stand until the very end. Well, that might be what this says. But let's look at it a little bit differently. Like we saw earlier in that a Christian acts a certain way means that they're a Christian. Not that they have worked their way to it. This is not a work. This is not something we're adding on to. Right? We said this before. Jesus says this is what a Christian looks like. That's not a to-do list to make us a Christian. Instead, we're a Christian, and so this is what we do. Same thing goes here. If you are a follower of Christ, you will stand firm until the end. See, this this can't mean physical life because all of the apostles were martyred except for John. So this must mean eternal. See, what happens is when bad things happen to us, when we experience persecution, that's when our true colors come out. Enduring to the end is not a way to be saved, but evidence that you already are saved. Persistence is not how you earn salvation. It's the byproduct of salvation residing in you. So their first promise is you will be saved. Not you may, not you might, but you will be saved. He is promising us that if our faith is in him, the salvation extends throughout our life and nothing can touch us. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, this idea of them persecuting you and coming after you There's another promise here. Jesus is coming back. 
It says, you will not finish the job. All of Israel will not be reached before Jesus returns in judgment, in power, at the end of time. Notice that he does give us the ability to flee from persecution. It's not foolishness. Believers are not to seek out persecution. But we're supposed to continue to preach. One one author writes, flight is not cowardice, it's fidelity to the mission. If necessary, we will die rather than renounce our faith, but it is better to withdraw withdraw to fight by preaching another day. We must keep moving, the time is short and the workers are few. When persecuted, we should change our geography, not our theology. We can quit the ground, but we must not quit our colors. We can say, I'm not gonna evangelize here anymore, I'm going to evangelize over here. Not, I'm going to give up on Jesus altogether. But notice, Jesus is coming back. There will be a judgment. And more importantly, there is an end. So no matter what you are experiencing, persecution and opposition, there is an end point. It may be your life comes to an end. It may be that Jesus comes back. Lord, come quickly. But we know how this ends, and we know who triumphs in the end. And then lastly, Jesus wants us to be encouraged because he is the son of God. No more perfect person has ever lived and no more has anybody experienced rejection more than Christ has. Look at verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, How much more will they malign those of the household? So the first thing we see is that we're not above the teacher. Whatever he's experienced, we need to be ready to experience. Second, we're to be like the teacher. We're to be so much like Jesus that we get the same response from the world. We are to be so like him. This is why we are to be opposed and persecuted. And then finally, we see that the disciples will be vilified like their teacher. What great company to be in. But notice he says, it's because you're of my household. You are my family. We're not of the prince of evil, Beelzebub. We are of the prince of peace, the king of kings. Matthew Henry says, Christ's followers cannot expect better treatment in the world than Jesus had. So this is the promise. We belong to him. We belong in his family. No matter what kind of family we have here on earth, whether we have parents who cared for us or parents who abandoned us, we are now a part of a family that we will never get kicked out of, that will never abandon us because our king is Christ. Look at this promise from John 6. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In 39, it says, all of the ones you've given me, I will lose none of them. All of his household stays his household, not just for time on earth, but for all of eternity. So Jesus is here preparing us. Opposition is going to happen. But that opposition is not the point. It's the provision that he provides us that's the point. He says, go out there as sheep, wise sheep and innocent sheep, but you are sheep. Conflict is coming. The opposition is going to be extreme. 
It's going to be intense. It's going to come from above us, and it's going to come from next to us. But praise be to God that we are not alone. Jesus is there. He sends us out. He provides us with the words to say. He puts his spirit in us. He'll save us at the last day because he is coming. Why? Because we're his. And he does not leave anyone behind. Praise be to God that this is the God we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I cannot think of any sweeter promise than that you will come back and gather all of yours to you. Lord, I just am excited for that day. I'm excited to see our King riding in in victory and calling forth all of his children. Lord, it is so great to be a part of your household. Lord, help us not to get hung up and focused on the persecution, the opposition, this dark world full of wolves that want to devour us. Instead, help us be wise and innocent as we go out in the midst of them, knowing that you are the one who sent us, that you will give us the words, that your spirit resides in us, and you are present right there with us as our Father. And no matter how it gets, you are coming to get us. You will take us home, and we will get to live out eternity with you. I pray, Lord, that if that's something uh, that is foreign to us, that today we would submit and know you. And if we know this, I pray that today we would revel in it again anew. Thank you, Lord, for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.